Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode what episode number? This is episode number eighty of the podcast. Oh boy! So uh, so yeah, episode eighty. So we're not a uh, very new podcast anymore. But uh, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, basically what we try to do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to. Uh, talk about a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something uh, on a topic we think you guys would like to hear a discussion about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, uh, you'll go out and uh, purchase the book for yourself and give it a read. So uh, yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And uh, my apologies to everybody uh, listening out there. I'm a little, uh, a little uh, nasally and uh, Flemish, uh, Flemmy. I just say Flemish. I'm not, uh, I'm not Belgian, uh, <laughs> but a little nasally and Flemmy today. So uh, my apologies for having to listen to me. Like I said, I'm gonna try to keep the mic muted as much as possible today, so I just don't, uh, you know, hack along up in your ear or anything like that. So uh, thanks for uh, bearing with us with that today. But anyway, all right, let's get down to it. My uh, my guest today is Dr. Brendan J.J. Payne. And Dr. Payne is an assistant professor at North Greenville University who has published in the Journal of Southern History, the Journal of Church and State, and the Journal of Religious History, among others. Uh, his first book is Jin, Jesus, and Jim Crow, Prohibition and the Transformation of Racial and Religious Politics in the South, uh, which was published uh, back in April by LSU Press. And is the book we are will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Payne, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, congratulations on, on the book, uh, your first one. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, what made you uh, what made you want to write this particular book? What was what was the genesis behind it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, it started back when I was at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary over in Boston. One of my professors, Garth Rizal. Uh, he'd encouraged me to get a Ph.D. in history, and I knew I wanted to do something about religion and American culture. And he said, why don't you look into prohibition? So I started to look, and I realized there was a range of religious perspectives on prohibition. That The word on the street among many scholars and popularly is that when it comes to religion and politics and prohibition, Christians were for prohibition, and that's just the way it was. But really, Christianity played on both sides of this culture war, and I wanted to explore that, especially since... That's still a relevant topic today. The culture war issues have changed, but the way that religion plays on both sides is, I think, really more of a constant than a new thing. I also discovered in my research when I went to Baylor University in 2012 that not only is this an issue of religion playing on both sides of culture war, but also race is deeply tied up with how prohibition works. So even though most people look at prohibition as a dead issue, it really has a lot of resonances with culture war issues generally, not just the drug wars, but also with how does religion and how does race tie up with the culture war issue. And I really wanted to explore that over decades across the U.S. South. Gotcha. So um, did you always want to be a historian? Was that something you just sort of uh, fell into in college? Like I was a history major in college. So uh, was it something you were just like, well, I guess this sounds all right. Or were you always... uh, sort of fascinated by by uh, uh, by history and uh, telling stories and that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, my dad's an academic. Um, you know, he was more in the theology side. He got a 
PhD in New Testament studies from Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in this family, even though my parents were evangelical missionaries. Um, and he was also highly educated uh, with doctorate from a big university. Uh, and then growing up, my parents were also into, they were small business owners. So it's kind of like, you know, all these <laughs> different touchstones. So I grew up with this idea that there was no sort of contradiction or tension between higher education, asking hard questions and seeking the truth unreservedly and deeply held religious faith. So there's always in this background of me in terms of interest in, interest in religion and interest in academics. It wasn't until high school that I really got interested in history, which until then I thought was boring. And it's just as you said, the idea that history is not merely names and dates, kings and battles, but it's mm. really about how we tell stories and how we connect dots. We know a lot about history in terms of what are historical dots, what are facts about the past, even though in a popular realm that's increasingly contested, unfortunately. But there's still this idea of even if we agree on what the facts are, what the dots are, what kind of shape do we make out of these dots? How do we connect them? What stories do we tell? And that's what's, for me, so interesting about history. It's not about knowing stuff. It's about making something intelligible from the stuff. And that's really why history is never done. Some people think like there's just textbooks and we know what happened in the past. Yeah. But textbooks are just stringing together information to tell stories in certain ways. It doesn't mean, you know, that there's just lies about the past. What it means is the way we interpret the data can mean different it can be told different ways, right? Yeah. And that's what history is all about. It's it's the stories we tell about the past it past. It's not just facts, it's the way we link them together. So that's what really interested me in history. But even though I was a history major in college, I really wanted to go into politics. Oh. Uh, but I was also a poli-sci minor and then did a little bit of um, work as a volunteer in politics. And I realized this is not what I <laughs> had signed up for. Um, so I, I, though I'm still interested in the political process, I realized, no, I, I'd really rather do something that's pursuing truth. Um, and so that then I went to graduate school, went to seminary and was then redirected again. Instead of going for the preacher route, went for the teacher route. Uh, getting a PhD in history. So that that fascination with um, the integration of faith and learning is something that's stuck with me for a long time um, because of my family background, but also thinking about um, how do we tell stories that are true and accurate. And I just found that a lot of uh, politics is all about, you know, like law in general, it's about winning. It's not about arriving at truth, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was just very much more set in that sort of a way. And uh, then I went to Baylor University and the rest is history. (laughs) <laughs> gotcha. All right. So uh, one more, I guess, like process question sure. uh, before we get to the, the book itself. So, uh, yeah. So what uh, what was the process for you for writing this book? How how long did it take you, uh, you know, to mm-hmm. put it all together? Sure. So I first was starting. I knew what I was working on in terms of religion and prohibition in 2012 when I first came to Baylor. And I finished my dissertation in late 2016. So the dissertation was sort of the seed of this project, but the dissertation was focused more on Texas specifically as sort of more of a statewide study. And even though Texas Mm -hmm. is the biggest state geographically and also in terms of population in the South, for this book, I really wanted to make it a true regional study. And so I was picking up a lot more sources from the Eastern South, from Florida, from Virginia, from the Carolinas, um, and also, you know, Arkansas, all over the place. So I did have a lot of regional stuff in the dissertation, but this is an expanded project. So really it took about 10 years because <laughs> oh, wow. it came out in 2022. So basically 10 years of work on this topic and then a lot of refining along the way. But yeah, I mean, I was working on 
the dissertation even when I was just doing coursework. So whenever I took a class on like the US South, I would write and do research for my paper that was also relevant to the dissertation. So it's been in drips and drabs and stops and starts, but really it's been a long tenure process uh, to write the book. Yeah, so I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was uh, something of a relief uh, this April. It was finally <laughs> just, you know, you finally yeah. got to let it go and Absolutely. and present it to the world. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So now you get to yeah. So now maybe uh, you know another ten years, you'll be next one or hopefully you know much quicker than ten years. Hopefully, but, it's but ten years, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it takes a, you know, I I think people just even people who read history don't sort of understand. Mm. Um, how long it takes to oh, yeah. to sort of the gestation process of, sure. of writing a book? Um, you know, uh, ten years, seven years. You know, I, I I'm yeah. Uh, I I've had uh, H W Brands on the podcast a couple times at mm, UT Austin, yeah. and he like cranks out a book like it seems like every year. Yeah, and I'm just like, dude, I don't know how you, <laughs> I don't know how you do. Uh, how you get it done that fast? That's incredible. I know he's not doing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the same sort of uh, deep dive research, uh, you know, uh, as a general historian that you're going to have to sure. do as an academic historian. But still, it's just sure. sort of just sort of boggles my mind that he can like, you know, like clockwork, just you know, bang one out every 365 yeah, days. Yeah, and I think know? a lot of that it's 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 a lot of what there's a lot to be said about the academy in general yeah. when it comes to academics pumping out works different. Fields have different timelines for when books should come out, mm-hmm. um, and I think part of it is also just teaching load, right? So sure. a lot of people who you know get their PhDs, if they end up getting jobs, it's like they're full time teaching. So I teach like a four four load, yeah, you know, and I'm also a department chair, so I'm gonna keep pretty busy. And of course during the pandemic we had to spend a lot of time adjusting, yeah, uh, and gear shifting. So. In that sort of environment, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that I ended up finishing it because I've been <laughs> teaching full time for the past five years, mm-hmm. right? And in the midst of that, to also be to be adjusting a kind of state study dissertation to a regional study book, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of writing. So, I mean, I'm really happy again. Like, I'm glad it's done. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't want to underestimate the amount of work that it takes. And I think some people are able to produce books so quickly because they have so much time, frankly, yeah, to devote to it. And other people, just like myself, we have less time than some others do. And it's still possible. And I want to encourage people that are you know, teaching full-time or feel like they're just too busy. You can make the time, but you just got to make the time for it. Um, and that, that just takes a lot of – takes some focus. And also, I mean, again, mm-hmm. the reason it's taking so long is because there were seasons where I was just not writing at all yeah. for like weeks, even months. And other times where during the summers, maybe I'll work more. Yeah. Um, but you just got to find the time when you can. And Lord willing, you know, if, if it all lines up, then you'll be able to uh, to finish the manuscript. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the book itself, uh, yeah. Jin, Jesus, and Jim Crow. So mm-hmm. uh, how was prohibition an inte- integral part of Jim Crow? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's four ways. First is chronologically. So when I talk about prohibition in the South, I mean statewide prohibition. Of course, there was like local option or like county city level prohibition mm-hmm. um, going back even in some parts of the South before the Civil War. But statewide prohibition is really when you have prohibition established. And that doesn't happen in any southern state until 1907. George is the first uh, state um, for the legislature to vote on that. And then by early uh, 1908, uh, you got several states 
uh, getting statewide prohibition. So statewide prohibition doesn't happen that much, that very far in the South before you have national prohibition about a decade later. Uh, it goes into effect across the nation in 1920 in January. So again, I think it's it's important to note that when I'm talking about statewide prohibition, this is something that develops late. And so Jim Crow predates prohibition in the South in terms of statewide prohibition, and prohibition is overturned in the South before Jim Crow is overturned. So in other words, prohibition always existed within the Jim Crow system in the South. Uh, secondly, we have this move from interracial cooperation in the 1880s around the issue of prohibition to white dries, that is white prohibitionists, trying to disfranchise African-Americans. In other words, the only reason prohibition succeeded um, ultimately is because it was tied up with this project of white supremacy and disfranchising unworthy, quote unquote, voters, whether that be poor whites, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans in the South. Uh, thirdly, opposition to prohibition in the South by the time you get to the 19 mills and 19 teens, for African-Americans, opposition to prohibition is one of the means they have to still hold on to what voting power they do have. And so resistance to prohibition for African-Americans in the 19 mills and 19 teens in the South was a resistance to Jim Crow because their right to vote was largely restricted um, in terms of significant votes in elections and mass voting, the last gasp of mass black voting in the South before the civil rights movement of the mid 20th century was against prohibition. Uh, the fourth reason is that when it comes to prohibition's enforcement, mostly in the 1920s, but even before that and a little bit after that, African-Americans are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement and race relations get worse under prohibition. So um, you have, of course, one of the reasons that folks are bemoaning speakeasies is not just because people are getting alcohol and you have men and women drinking together, which is never really happened before. Yeah, it had not happened before because saloons were largely a male dominated space. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, there were women there, but largely prostitution was tied up with saloons as well. And so all of a sudden you have women and men of their own free choice, you know, women who are not bound by their employment to work there are just going there for a date. Right. And so that's breaking gender taboos, but it's also breaking racial taboos. Um, of course, jazz music was largely denounced by a lot of white cultural commentators because it has African-American origins in the 1860s in the South, in New Orleans. And because it's a, an African-American, a black made music style, um, a lot of white cultural commentators are afraid because they have number one, black music, which is really popular dances, which are heavily influenced by African dance styles associated with jazz. And of course, interracial bands and racial interracial mixing at these speakeasies. So as the alcohol culture is driven underground, it's violating gender and racial taboos. Um, and of course, the alcohol industry that's underground is not just dominated by, you know, whites anymore. African-Americans can make, you know, a bathtub gin just as much as whites can. And so you have figures like Fannie Lou Hamer, who's really famous in the 1960s in Mississippi fighting for voting rights in the, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Her father was a Christian minister, but also um, a bootlegger, right? And so there's a sense in which resistance to Jim Crow and resistance to prohibition go hand in hand, not just while African-Americans are still voting against it, but even into the 1920s uh, into prohibition. Um, and so again, there's this arc of white supremacist politics in the South was um, 
expressed and sort of finalized on a voting level because of prohibition, right? And it was resistance to prohibition where African-Americans were able to work with brewers and distillers because um, brewers and distillers were desperate for votes. African-Americans were desperate to vote. And so you had coordinated efforts by African-Americans working with the alcohol lobby to keep mass voting afloat uh, until prohibition was finally enacted nationwide in the 1920s. So that's kind of the story of race. And basically, the only reason I argue that Jim Crow was overturned in the South, or one of the main reasons it was overturned, is because one of its main reasons, which is racial control, was accomplished. And we know this because one of the arguments for prohibition by white prohibitionists is basically, if you ban alcohol, then we will have more, more docile, their words, right, and controlled African-American <coughs> men. And this idea that- And we won't have to lynch them. And that's yeah. exactly the argument they made <laughs> yeah. across the South by white prohibitionists. In other words, they thought if you have more um, restrictions on alcohol, that's going to restrict black bodies, especially black male bodies, which is going to protect white women. Well, in the 1920s, white women got the vote, largely because of the prohibition issue. Right? It's one of the reasons why women got the vote is because prohibitionists, Dries, thought that if women could vote, prohibition would never be overturned. Of course, by the 1930s, white women are are starting to change their minds. Of course, black women largely could not vote because of Jim Crow laws. So when you say women's suffrage, it's largely white women's suffrage in the South. And white women start to change their minds. And because of this, one of the main arguments for prohibition, which is protecting white women by restricting black men, no longer applies. In other words, if white women feel safe enough with the public social order to oppose prohibition, then one of its main rationales, racial control, uh, is no longer necessary. In other words, mm -hmm. Jim Crow prohibition helped to accomplish Jim Crow by eradicating mass black voting. But um, once it was no longer needed for racial control, it was conceivable, possible, and inevitable that it would be overturned by the 1930s. And it was across the region. Yeah. Now, uh, you point out in the book that um, it was sort of difficult for prohibition to take root in the South. Yeah. Um, the South re uh, resisted these dry laws, yeah. these state and local dry laws, pretty much the longest of any region in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but when the South went dry, it went dry really fast. Yeah. And it, uh, it stayed dry, persisted, prohibition persisted mm -hmm. uh, at, the, at a local level and a state lo level. It persisted there the longest. Why... Yes. Um, how what how did that shift take place is is that mostly uh is it reshaping of southern christianity in any way that has uh, yes. caused that or 100 percent okay yeah, yeah so the book is divided into two parts the first part i love word word play <laughs> so the first part is bourbon rule because bourbon <laughs> is number one an all-american drink that was according to legend made by first elijah craig a baptist minister whether or not he was the first, he actually was a bourbon distiller. We know that this is a fact, right? Um, and the Elijah Craig brand of bourbons persists today, right? Um, so the South, if Kentucky is part of the South, which was a slave state. So the South was the origin. To me, it's part of the South. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, sure. There you go. I mean, culturally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly. Um, so Kentucky, so the, the South is where bourbon comes from. And bourbon is like the American distinctive kind of whiskey you know it's like it's like french cognac it's actually mm -hmm. recognized by international alcohol bodies as like a national treasure um so number one a baptist minister in the south made bourbon in the late 1700s so 
you know, at least was one of the early guys to do it. So how did this go from a national treasure and a regional creation by a minister, a Baptist minister, nonetheless, to all of a sudden being Baptist 100 years later, think alcohol is just the worst thing ever. And certainly now over 200 years later. And I think the answer to that is prohibition reshaped religion, as you said. So it really reshaped religion in several ways. First, traditionally, by which I mean like the ancient church, the medieval mm -hmm. church, and the early modern church, nobody thought alcohol as such was evil. Like nobody. Um, the Puritans, who get a lot of rap for being repressed, were actually, when it comes to sex and when it comes to alcohol, much more um, unrepressed, shall we say, than a lot of contemporary um, conservative Christians in America today. I mean, they, they drank alcohol freely. Jonathan Edwards' father, at his ordination service, I mean, they, they were flowing the wine and the beer. I mean, it, it was not a problem for them, as long as drunkenness was not happening, right? So drunkenness, bad, alcohol, good. Right. And of course, communion wine, which, I mean, going back to before Christianity was a thing, I mean, Jesus, you know, passing around the cup to his disciples, that's from the Jewish Seder dinner, where there's four cups of wine. So this tradition of holy wine at sacred events is thousands of years old in the Jewish and Christian tradition. And all of a sudden, in the eight, late 1800s, people are saying, all alcohol is bad, let's replace the wine and communion with grape juice, which is still the case in most churches today, which is an aberration. It's, it's an innovation, and it breaks with thousands of years of Jewish and Christian tradition. And the answer, the question is, why, why are they changing their worship practices? Why are they going against alcohol? Why are they changing their view toward the state? Why is it that the state, why should they pass laws to ban and restrict alcohol use? Why shouldn't this be a church discipline issue, right? Um, all of a sudden, you know, so that's a change towards the view of government as well and what it means to be free and have liberty. And, you know, when it comes to developing moral character, it should be resisting temptation, not banning temptation, right? That's Temperance. a traditional Christian perspective. And so there are fundamental changes in terms of how people look at alcohol, how they look at Christian practice, how they look at Christian doctrine, how they look at the role of the church and the state together. And also another part of that is the view of Roman Catholics changes over time. And I argue that actually anti-Catholicism is a, is a thing throughout Protestant history for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. but I think that prohibition, this issue actually made um, Protestant Catholic relations a lot worse, um, largely because Protestants, except for like Episcopalians and some Lutherans, largely supported prohibition and Roman Catholics largely did not. And that, that you know, clash really reared its ugly head in the presidential election of 1928. Mm. Once prohibition became the law of the land, you happen to have a presidential candidate, Al Smith, who is the child of immigrants. He's from New York. He had a Fourth Ward accent. Yeah, and I was, was going to say, Al Smith is heavily, heavily, <laughs> oh, yeah. heavily oh, a New yeah. Yorker. Heavily New uh, Yorker, yeah. hated prohibition, could tell everybody who bear, cared to hear. And because he was Catholic and because he was anti-prohibition, he went down to an astonishing defeat, a landslide defeat in the 1928 election. And the, the language of prohibitionists in the South largely talked about not only his uh, religion, but also his prohibition stance. And interestingly enough, even in the 20s, when Jim Crow was in place, when largely African-Americans could not vote, a lot of the attacks against Al Smith in the U.S. South among prohibitionists who are white was targeting he has um, a basically uh, he supports racial equality. And that was an attack line that they used against Smith. And I'm thinking you think that they would talk more about his Catholicism, but race continues to be this key issue in the 1920s 
um, among dry Southerners who are white. So it, it's just fascinating to me how when it comes to religion, religion is totally reshaped. The, the relationship between the church and the state, political preaching was completely unacceptable throughout the South in the 1880s because they connected political preaching with like abolition, mm. which of course, you know, um, <laughs> Southerners kind of blamed abolitionists for the Civil War. But now, it, you know, in the early 20th century, you have white Southern Baptist and Methodist ministers and other ministers too in the South talking about political preaching not only as something acceptable in the case of prohibition, but generally a positive influence. And by the 20s, political preachers are the ones who are on the offensive and Roman Catholics like Al Smith, who are not trying to mix religion and politics, right, but are trying to oppose prohibition, they're on the defensive. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting, and other people have written at length about this as well. Uh, Joseph Smith, in making the Bible Belt, has made a great case for this. Robert Wethnow wrote a little bit about it. But yeah, so prohibition was at the forefront of these dramatic changes, not only in terms of racial politics in the South, but also uh, religion and religious politics in the South as well. Yeah, uh, as you point out in the book, the truly uh, the truly traditionalist Christians yeah. were the the anti-prohibitionists, the West, right. not the Dries. The Dries were the uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you want to use the term heretical, but uh, <laughs> oh, I would say innovative. Um, <laughs> innovative. In, in American. <coughs> When people say innovative, usually they take it as a positive thing because they think of like iPhones and Steve Jobs and the moon landing or something. But theologically, innovative has mm -hmm. traditionally been kind of a negative term because it mm -hmm. means you're changing. It's like modernism, right? I mean, the whole point of the fundamentalist movement was to oppose the modernists who they said were, you know, falling into these newfangled ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And they're trying to adapt Christianity to modern life. The irony of that, though, and this is what, why I make the case that when it comes to prohibition, fundamentalists and modernists largely agreed on prohibition because fundamentalism itself, I would argue, I kind of make that point subtly in the book, but I'm going to make it boldly here. Fundamentalism is a form of modernism in terms of these doctrines like inerrancy. I don't think inerrancy is necessarily like a bad doctrine or heresy, you know, to use your word, mm -hmm. but it is a new idea. The idea that, you know, the Bible is infallible. That's language, or particularly like inerrant. There are no errors in the original autographs. Right. That's a very modern sort of thing that only really comes up in the 1800s. I mean, yes, people talked about the Bible being the word of God and being perfect and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But that kind of scientific sort of language of the Bible being inerrant, which is a fundamentalist mainstay, that's a new thing. The idea of premillennialism, which became wrapped up with, you know, um, fundamentalism, the idea that you know, that, that Jesus is going to come, there's going to be the rapture, yep. and then there's going to be the tribulation, and like the Left Behind books, that yeah, sort of idea. Yeah. That's a modern idea. It was not widely accepted among Christians until the eight, late 1800s and early 20th century. So these two m main theological points of fundamentalism are themselves modern creations, basically. So, yes, I mean, modernists were challenging some traditional Christian beliefs, certainly. But fundamentalists, I would argue, are themselves using very new sort of ideas as definitions of what it means to be a Christian and de-emphasizing things like, you know, the creeds, right? Mm, sure. <laughs> and de-emphasizing tradition with a capital T. Right. And I think that, so, so for me, you know, when I look at both the fundamentalists and the modernists, whether they're on the theological left or right, so to speak, they're all embracing sort of contemporary American cultural innovations, as I would say. And and so nobody's really being traditionalists except the people 
you know, the churches, whether that's Lutherans or Episcopalians or Catholics, were kind of looking back over to Europe, kind of away from contemporary American culture towards like more traditional ideas, whether that's, you know, you have Jay Gresimachian, who's this, it's called a fundamentalist. Theologically, though, he, he considered himself more of like a Calvinist, like a traditional Calvinist, because he was focusing more on like the way that Luther and Calvin or especially Calvin was talking about Christian faith. They're looking back hundreds of years to Europe or Roman Catholics or Lutherans looking back, especially to Germany or Scandinavian uh, national churches for hundreds of years. It's this rootedness to tradition. That's sort of an antidote to prohibitionist thinking, I think. Right. Um, and of course, even the U S South traditionally had in for most of the, the 19th century and 18th century been embracing alcohol usage and wary of political preaching. So, so yeah, I mean, these are, you know, yeah, I would say, I would say innovative, but also, I would caution against those of us who are tempted to try to see in prohibition like a sort of one-to-one -one correspondence to a contemporary issue, right? Sure. I'm talking about culture wars generally in the U.S., and I think that, you know, I mean, I, I think tradition is a good thing, and I'm kind of more cautioning against what happens when you kind of unmoor, like when, when, when Christian churches are unmooring themselves from tradition, like Chesterton's well, fence. Get innovation, right? And that's what happens. And so I think there's lots of ways that can be interpreted today. Um, and, and I would say we should be careful about, again, prohibition is not like the backward prohibitionist versus the forward thinking anti-prohibitionist. It was the other way around, as you said. It, in other words, people who opposed prohibition tended to do so because they were clinging to traditions. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's, you know, religious traditions looking back to Europe um, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, or when you're talking about African Americans, you know, who are trying to hold on to their citizenship rights. Yeah. The 14th and 15th Amendment, right? Um, and by opposing prohibition, that's their means of holding on to those rights, those traditions as well. All right, gotcha. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit uh, yeah, sure. onto like the uh, more of a political issue. So yeah. Um, how did prohibition change the South's um, perception of of government, of intervention, uh, interventionist government, of progressive interventionist government at the state level. Sure. So the South tended to be more of a hands-off place. Again, like going back to the Bourbons, the Bourbons were sort of conservative. Sometimes they called themselves just the conservative party in places like Virginia. Other places they were the, the Democrats. Um, but yeah, basically conservative Democrats, uh, we would call them today. And they they believed in Jeffersonian democracy, which for them meant limited government. Um, letting local government handle local issues and state government handle state issues. So kind of what we would say, kind of a, an aggressive sort of federalism. So local government. And of course, states' rights arguments were used over the years for things like slavery. So people say like the Civil War was about states' rights. I'm like, yeah, the states' rights issue of slavery, right? But also, you know, Boy, states' yeah, rights... One very big specific states' rights issue. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. not all of the states' rights issue. Right? This is not like you know, the, the terror crisis of 28 and, you know, 1832. Yeah. We're talking about slavery. That's that's the issue, the states' rights issue. But the language of states' rights is used after the war by kind of lost cause advocates to kind of, you know, um, paper over or kind of whitewash what the war was about, which was slavery, of course, when white supremacism. Uh, and of course, then later on, states' rights is used to justify the so-called redeemers and the Bourbon governments of the late 1800s in the South, that overthrew interracial government and uh, recon um, reconstruction. You also have that language supporting opposition to integration in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and that kind of language of states' rights can support really nasty things, obviously. But the Jeffersonian democracy is also, in theory, something that's supposed to empower individual rights, local government, 
uh, states' rights over federal intervention. And so when it comes to prohibition, the irony is that those defenders of like local government are opposed to statewide prohibition and then federal prohibition. And in fact, you have some people in the South, it's not, it's kind of ambiguous who's dry and who's wet because you have people that are supporting prohibition on like the local level, but oppose statewide or federal prohibition in the South. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so like Alabama, which went dry pretty soon uh, before 1910, one of the earlier states to go dry by active legislature, the, the congressional delegation overwhelmingly opposed federal prohibition, um, the, the, the 18th Amendment, right, so at a federal level. So they opposed mm-hmm. federal prohibition, but it's one thing to promote like local prohibition. So after that, you have this uh, move of Southern prohibitionists, among other issues, like anti-gambling advocates, um, basically um, people for public morality, Comstock law sort of stuff, blue laws. Those sorts of folks in the South are becoming part of this broader reform movement. There's a great book on this by Gaines Foster called um, Moral Reconstruction. And one of the points is that even Southern white ministers and people in general are now getting on board with like national reform movements, whereas before they were focused on like local and state issues. And I think that's an important distinction. And so nowadays, I mean, no one bats an eye when you have you know, folks from the U.S. South supporting um, national amendments uh, about a few years ago uh, during when George W. Bush was president, like the National Marriage Amendment. Right. Yeah. And people not even batting an eye. It's like this is a federal law. So, you know, this is this is what we do. We, we change things not only at the local level, but the federal level that goes against the old school Jeffersonian democracy, which was the consensus in the South. And yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, folks will use states' rights language, and other times they'll try to use federal legislation, depending on the issue, of course. But I think this kind of move away from a consistent Jeffersonian democracy is one of the big contributions of prohibition, largely because in order for prohibition to work, you kind of have to do it at a bigger level, like a state and federal level. Otherwise, there's no way you can effectively do it, as prohibitionists discovered to their dismay over decades of experimentation. Um, And then even federal legislation didn't do the trick, obviously. But yeah, this is a huge shift from the South from being really localist Jeffersonian Democrats to more robust reformers at the national level. Yeah, uh, speaking at the the federal level though, I know yeah. it's not really part of the book, but um, sure. you know, a lot of people when they think of prohibition, they just think of this like total failure uh, of mm-hmm. law that it didn't sure. do anything that it uh, in, set out to do and had all these bad unintended consequences. But it actually did um, lower the levels of drinking in the country. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm fairly significantly i mean yeah. it wasn't uh uh it didn't get you know it didn't totally eliminate the sure. uh you know the amount of alcohol that was being drunk in the country but it did put a big dent in it it did because it raised the prices i mean it's like free market economics right and yeah, yeah. if you if you have scarcity it drives the prices up sure. so most poor americans like cirrhosis of liver among poor americans plummeted during prohibition it didn't recover those levels of cirrhosis until like the 1970s or 80s yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, re- I would say regulation was much more effective at, um, uh, how to say it, kind of controlling excessive uses among richer people. So actually, yeah, most most populations drinking went down. Among the rich, drinking actually might have gone up <laughs> during Prohibition because they could afford it and they had stockpiles of alcohol. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, generally speaking, like it really reduced drinking levels. So, yeah, it's not a failure. Also, it's really successful in changing, again, how... Southern whites thought about uh, the state and church relationship mm-hmm. and also their role towards just government in general. 
yeah. that this idea that the government can be more expansive and an interventionist, that's something that prohibition laid the groundwork for. And it's funny, people talk about like the progressive amendments, like, oh, women getting the right to, right to vote, yay, and or income tax, you know, personal income tax, the 16th Amendment, or a direct election of U.S. senators. But people don't talk as much about prohibition because, yes, it was overturned, but it laid the groundwork for the New Deal. Right, but it, I guess but that's because prohibition is kind of embarrassing for progressives, maybe, well, sure. uh, because of its, oh. you know, uh, failure. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's probably why they they uh, yeah, overlook it. But yeah. Well, yeah, JFK said, you know, uh, what is it? Success has a hundred fathers, but uh, failures often. And I think nobody wants yeah. to take credit for it. But yeah, I, I would argue that certainly from a political perspective, prohibition is profoundly progressive. Because number one, it's trying to enlarge the role of government to solve a moral, you know, or governance problem right which to be fair the alcohol industry was terrible they were ter- i mean they did so many unethical things um they, they would stoop so lo- like they were so bad that they would even they were even willing to work with african-americans i mean in in the 19 teens <laughs> that was perceived by whites as being like a really bad thing to do yeah, right? yeah now of course we look back and we're like oh yay interracial politics but for them they probably did it like even though they thought it was morally wrong. <laughs> they just did it because they were in de- desperate straits. They were willing to do anything um, illegal or legal to, you know, stay afloat as an industry. Yeah, so, I was, I, just, I was just wanted to ask you about that. Um, yeah. Uh, because even, uh, or despite Jim Crow, yeah. uh, blacks were still able to uh, sort of tip the scales in some, some yeah. statewide referend on prohibition in yeah. uh, Texas, Arkansas, and Florida, I think. Yeah. Florida. Um, and, that was around the period uh, that uh, brewers uh, and alcohol manufacturers and sure. black people became sort of fairly strong political allies. How yeah. how how did that come about, and how did how were black people able to, uh, in spite of Jim Crow, still sort of put their thumb on the scale uh, and tip it, you know, the other way? Sure. So there's a, a multi-level answer there. So first, Jim Crow isn't one thing. It's several things. It's yeah. more of like a patchwork quilt. So Jim Crow looked differently in Arkansas than it did in Alabama. It looked differently in Texas than Tennessee. And so in some states, it was a lot easier for African-Americans to tip the scales uh, because of how Jim Crow worked. So when it comes to poll taxes, which is the idea that you have to pay a tax in order to vote, um, some states like Alabama or Virginia, it was really onerous to pay poll taxes because you had to pay them consecutively. So if you like skipped a couple years, you had to pay back taxes in poll taxes. And this made it way too expensive for African-Americans to jump in and jump out of elections. Um, secondly, uh, whereas in Texas and Arkansas and Florida, it was a little bit easier because you just kind of had an opt-in tax. So like you paid your tax for a year and anytime during that year, as long as you had a poll tax receipt, you could vote. Um, so the second part of that is sometimes brewers and distillers would actually fund the payment of poll taxes, but again, they're, they're a profit driven business, right? They don't mm-hmm. want to waste the money. They don't have to. So they would usually just hire a handful of public speakers, often African-American ministers, ba- Baptist usually, but sometimes Methodist as well, or independent Baptist, um, ministers. And they would basically speak to African-American churches and communities to mobilize them and they would pay their own poll taxes. Um, so that was sort of the, this, there was political movement to do this, but sometimes they would pay poll taxes because they just needed to um, get the votes in and time was of the essence. And so they just greased people's palms, which mm. by the way, this was not just African-Americans being paid off to vote a certain way. This sort of payment to vote in a right way is something that you see in urban cities in the North. Uh, yeah, it's as American as apple pie. It's an American you know? tradition. And honestly, yeah. 
one of my book projects I'd like to write next is kind of like voter fraud in American tradition, you know, and basically talk about like how voter fraud has worked in the American past. Um, because people talk, there's a lot of talk about elections and fairness these days. Sure. And I think it would be so helpful to have a, well, what, what was it like in the 1880s or the 1930s? Like what, what's changed about elections? And I think just, there's so much people don't know. Um, so in other words, and the third thing that's really important about prohibition elections, and this is key is most African-Americans were disfranchised by Jim Crow, period. Even in states with the lighter Jim Crow laws like Texas or Florida or Arkansas. But um, African-Americans generally did not participate in the Democratic primary because they were banned, like they were racialized primaries, only whites could vote in the Democratic primary, uh, which was basically the general election. So the reason a lot of people thought that African-Americans couldn't vote or their voting rights were all stripped away by the early, early 20th century is because the African-Americans didn't vote in large numbers for like statewide office or like state legislature. In other words, they weren't voting for people, mm. but African-Americans were able to vote in prohibition elections because they were separate. They were at a different day, different month um, from a lot of these other elections, often a different year because they would corrupt up in like odd numbered years as well. So because prohibition was at a different time, because there was cooperation with a major white-led industry, there was a lot of money involved, um, and because there were relatively lighter Jim Crow laws in some states, that's how thousands, even in some cases, tens of thousands, like in Texas, of African-American voters were able to go to the polls and work with brewers. And the best example of this is probably Arkansas, because the same day that there was a, a vote on statewide prohibition in uh, 1912, there was also a vote on a bill that would have strengthened Jim Crow laws and made it harder for African-Americans to vote. Mm -hmm. And so the brewers and African-Americans explicitly teamed up and said, okay, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you vote against the prohibition bill, said the brewers and distillers, then African-Americans, uh, we're going to back you up voting against these uh, Jim Crow laws. Um, and so that's what happened. And the same day, almost the same margins against both bills. Uh, decisively defeated. So, I mean, it, it's pretty transparent collusion in some cases. In other cases, they're, they're trying to keep it quiet. But um, I feel really blessed that I found sources that are publicly available. You can even look them up on the internet, right, of the collusion between brewers and distillers. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that, that was a way that there were loopholes in the Jim Crow system. And of course, once like the Texas Attorney General cracked down on brewers and exposed their tactics, it was a scandal. And the brewers were heavily penalized, and that kind of shattered the interracial uh, collaboration between African Americans and the brewers. Mm -hmm. But also, brewers were really obnoxious. I mean, they were racist, like most you know white people in that time period in the United States. Yeah. And so they treated African Americans much worse um, than than white supporters, and that alienated a lot of African Americans. Even though they were still getting the right to vote, a lot of folks like John Rayner, who's a big character in the book, he finally wonders like, is this even worth it? Right. So, yeah, like we're changing elections, but we're being treated like crap by both sides. So why bother? And that's eventually what happens is the coalition falls apart by the 19 teens. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I know Jim Crow. I mean, it's uh, I mean, the whole purpose behind Jim Crow, the yeah. the the, you know, the two categories of the Jim Crow laws to mm -hmm. further racial segregation and mm -hmm. advance so voter suppression on the voter side, the voter suppression mm -hmm. side. It was even, I mean, the uh, from the uh, 
quote-unquote right-thinking white Southerner point of mm-hmm. view, uh, you know, th- the main goal is to uh, keep blacks from voting. But the other good thing about uh, things like poll taxes uh, and literacy tests and things like that is it kept mm-hmm. the, the wrong kind of whites yes. from voting to, you know, quote-unquote white trash would be called, you know. That is that's the language they would have used as well. Yeah. And yeah. And in some states like Virginia, I mean, it got so bad, like most white people couldn't vote. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and only when you have a minority of of white people voting in Virginia, that's one of the reasons why Virginia continued to be a really uh, kind of um, even among the south, southern states into like the 1970s. It was like a very conservative bastion because the voting laws were so um, restrictive. They're much more so than any other southern state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, also, you mentioned this before. We talked a little bit about the um, uh, anti-Catholicism of the yeah. uh, Prohibition movement. But as a uh, card-carrying papist, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just uh, sort of enlightened me. How uh, <laughs> just some of the language and uh, that was used and uh, just how how anti-Catholic was the Prohibition movement? Yeah, so it depends. Um, I would say like, er, and I would argue that there are, you have to look case by case basis, locale or state or whatever. But as a whole, I argue that anti-Catholicism in the South got a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. Because of prohibition, and I go back to the 1887 Texas statewide prohibition campaign, which of course failed miserably, as all of the prohibition campaigns in the 19th century South fared. None of them succeeded. Not until the 20th century does a single state go dry in the South. The leader of the Texas Dries, B.H. Carroll um, from Waco, he said, we need to work together across creeds and across races. So he was reaching out to African-Americans. He was reaching out to Mexican-Americans. He was reaching out to Catholics. He was reaching out to everybody. Um, This obviously wasn't successful, partly because some of his fellow uh, Dries, including this guy um, um, Cranfull, um, basically wrote racist and anti-Catholic editorials um, and anti-immigrant editorials uh, during this campaign, which alienated, of course, African-Americans, um, African-Americans, uh, Catholics, etc. So over time, you have the, the more ecumenical minded um, and the more sectarian drives, shall we say, kind of in parallel. And the Anti-Saloon League, which was the big political arm of the drives, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, the Anti-Saloon League was ecumenical as well. So it basically said, we don't care what your creed is, all we care about is, are you dry or are you wet? And it's really the birth of what we would call like single issue, um, wedge issue politics Mm -hmm. um, in in a professional um, data-driven sort of way. And they of course managed to push through the 18th amendment, even though most Americans may or may not have supported it because they were relentless lobbyists. Right. And they were ruthless. Right. Even if you were a moderate, they would take you down because you weren't on their side 100 percent. So, yeah, anti-Catholicism got really worse in the 19 teens and 20s when it became the law of the land. So, again, the only person ever elected to be governor on the Prohibition Party banner was this guy called Sidney Johnson Katz in (laughs) Florida. And he was, oh, my goodness. What what a story. There's a fantastic biography of him called. Uh, this is the title, right? Sorry, Cracker Ooh. Messiah. And he explicitly <laughs> appealed to, in his words, quote unquote, Cracker Whites, right? Um, oh, that's what they call here in Florida, or you know, I mean, that, so they still they, call themselves. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's it's kind of yeah. like redneck back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the the poor whites that nobody cared about, 
and he kind of called themselves like you only have like three friends like me jesus and um roebuck basically um so yeah there's like no no one you can trust but me essentially and that that sort of language of course the populist sort of rhetoric resonates but he was on the prohibition party banner for for governor because he lost the democratic primary in what may or may not have been a corrupt um vote rigging thing anyway so he ends up being governor and he's not only a prohibitionist he's flaming anti-catholic right just he's worrying about like papist conspiracies to use his language and you read like his campaign flyers and he's just so anti-catholic and of course then of course the nadir of maybe um protestant catholic relations in the united states 1928 when there's a finally a roman catholic major party candidate and he just gets slaughtered by herbert hoover in 28 and part of it's because well the republican party was in charge and the economy was going well so he had an uphill climb anyway but because he links Catholic faith and anti-prohibitionism in the minds of most Americans, um, anti-Catholicism and anti uh, kind of and in dry sentiment kind of unite in a special way in that election. And of course, I talk about the Klan as well. That the Klan was simultaneously vociferously anti-Catholic as well as prohibitionist. Um, and Lisa McGurr, in her book *The War on Alcohol*, she basically said. Prohibition kind of made the Klan, right? Yeah. So because that was an issue around which people around the country, not just the South, around the country, Indiana was one of the biggest Klan organizations in the country outside the South. Yeah. So you know the the Klan rose partly because they were part of this this movement. And again, um, we're all dries, uh, bigots, and anti-Catholics. No, not necessarily. But a lot of their leadership was. Right. Like James Cannon, a Methodist bishop in Virginia, who was one of the most high ranking members of the Anti-Saloon League nationally in 1928, was just went on rampages against Catholics. Right. And so when you have that kind of leadership, it, it speaks for the organization. So, yeah, I would say Catholic relations got worse. And of course, in 1928, several southern states that had never voted Republican voted Republican against Al Smith, including Texas. Yeah. Um, the first time it ever voted Republican, certainly not the last. And this, of course, creates this split among white Democrats and white Southerners in general, who had traditionally seen the Democratic Party as the party of white supremacy. And all of a sudden, now that white votes are split, there's this concern, oh no, like what's going to happen if we're not all on the same page on this issue? Yeah, you talk about the uh, sort of the... uh the popularity of the clan at that time, the second, mm. the second clan. So yes, the second clan. There's, there's sort of like three, I guess, distinct clans. Just the first sure. clan. The first clan is in the, you know, after the Civil War. That's right. essentially just basically a terrorist organization. Right. Uh, the second clan, I mean, while it does some bad stuff, it's more yes. of a, it's more really just like a fraternal organization. Yeah. Um, you know, that still has its hands in some. Uh, illegalities and oh yeah but it's not per se i mean the whole point of it is not to go out and like lynch and kill and that sort of thing it's just sure. uh but anyway so uh we talk about like it, it's popularity outside the south this is so yeah. my my grandparents told me this story mm. um so my grandparents were, are from illinois and yeah. uh, were from sort of central illinois and yeah. uh they're catholic and okay. a friend of theirs um i guess this is in the mid 60s i guess um, a friend of theirs got a job at mm-hmm. uh, Southern Illinois University, in, which is in Carbondale, which is in uh-huh. uh, what is called Egypt, like that southern part of yeah. Illinois is called Egypt. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it's very culturally similar to the South, even though yes. it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, so I got he got a, a professorship, I guess, at SIU, mm-hmm. and apparently the like the first night or like the first week, he had like moved into his house in in Carbondale. Yeah. Uh, he had a cross burned into <laughs> on his lawn. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So then this was in like the mid '60s, and he's a Catholic. Yeah. You right. know, but. Uh, um, so it's just weird, or not weird, yeah. but it's just uh, sort of crazy how, how um, not that long ago, I mean, it's only 50 years mm-hmm. ago or so, yeah. and, you know, not the South, uh, right. and, uh, but, you know, stuff like that's still going on, but, uh, yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's not until 1960 that a, a Catholic presidential candidate finally wins. Right, in yeah. KFK. And the funny thing is, nobody's even talking about that we have a second Catholic president. Like nobody's talking about. It. Like yeah, I mean, well, he's. You know? I mean, he's Catholic in in name. I don't know how much of huh. the church actually has much of a hold on. Well, I mean, I'd argue that he talks more about his faith and politics than JFK did. JFK is like, my faith has nothing to do with my politics. That was like his whole shit. Yeah, but, but, true. Also, right. True, right. but I mean, it was also far less politically. Uh, uh, a, a good idea to be speaking about your faith as a Catholic from in 1959 sure. yeah. and 1960 and 61 right. than it is in, you know, 2022. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, yeah. Joe Biden, uh, I guess is Catholic. But it's like, but it's like a non-issue <laughs> now, right? Like we have a Catholic majority on the Supreme court. Nobody cares. Yeah. We have a yeah that's another, like, there's cares. like, there's, is there a there's single Protestant on the, on the Supreme court at this point? Yeah. We have, there's like, uh, well, Ginsburg's gone. So Kagan's Jewish. Right. Um, is everybody? Is there any? Is Gorsuch Protestant? Or? Yeah, Gorsuch is. The, the, he's been baptized as a Catholic when mm. he was a baby, but I think uh, he's been seen attending Episcopal churches. So he's a maybe Protestant. So yeah. uh, uh, KBJ Katanji Brown Jackson. I think she's oh, right. the only confirmed Protestant on the court. Yeah, was, I, I keep forgetting about <laughs> yeah, her because she's right. so new. Which is hilarious um, that like there's almost no Protestants left on the court. But again, like in this in today's politics. Like, there are Catholics and there are Catholics, right? Mm-hmm. And so being Catholic doesn't really mean necessarily anything politically. And because we're such a more pluralistic nation, because now, like, if you identify as none, that's, like, not as big of a deal as it was even just 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Politically. Um, so um, it, I think it's interesting that our country has shifted from being Catholic was, like, a political death sentence mm-hmm. in national politics. And now it's, like, nobody cares, you know, and, and even if you're, again, apparently, if you want to go for the Supreme Court, you better be Catholic, you know, because <laughs> odds are it's going to help you out. Yeah, yeah, seems like it. Um, all right, well, we're finally taking it back from the Prots, uh, <laughs> one branch at a time. Uh, <laughs> no, anyway, uh, but no, one thing I actually I did find interesting uh, in the book, toward the end, uh, the how the lost cause narrative was used mm. against prohibition. Yes. So how uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I didn't bring this up early, did I? Yeah, so yeah. back in the 1880s, Thomas, uh, so Tom, not Thomas Jefferson, um, Jefferson Je- Davis, yeah. the, uh, the other Jeffersonian Democrat, um, <laughs> as they say, he is enjoying retirement. He's, he's become an Episcopalian. And um, so he speaks out against prohibition in 1887. There are two statewide elections that year, Tennessee and Texas, both of which defeat prohibition, of course. But he basically makes this old argument of states' rights, um, and he even apologizes, I'm sorry that I'm intervening on like another state's issue because he's from Alabama. But he's basically saying, I think that if you have prohibition, the only way that you can enforce it is through these sort of inquisitorial methods. 
Um, in other words, expanding the police state, which, of course, is exactly what the war on drugs has done. Uh, you, you need to have a very aggressive, invasive state to enforce those sorts of laws mm-hmm. on a massive level upon millions of people, which, of course, increases mass incarceration, which prohibition helped to kind of accelerate that, that trend. Um, and essentially saying that we need to, to think more about this on a local level, not on a state level. Again, Jeffersonian democracy and uh, emphasize, emphasizing individual freedom but also the freedom to be more local in the way we approach issues of morality like that. And that was picked up in the 1930s by this organization called the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, which basically meant repeal. Sure. And it had quite a following across the country, including in the U.S. South, where it was obviously led by women. So you have a lot of white women that are picking up the lost cause narrative of, you know, Jefferson Davis, I mean, the president of the Confederacy, who's officially an anti-prohibitionist. And that rhetoric really helps sway a lot of Southerners, that kind of language. And going back to the old Southern ways, you know, of thinking about prohibition and freedom and liberty, that language really resonated with a lot of white Southerners, women and men. And so that whole idea of, you know, that that prohibition is the kind of imposition from the Northerners. That sort of language is you, you get in the 1880s and 90s a lot in the South. And then it sort of becomes indigenized, and then it, prohibition gets repealed. But as you noted, when people think about prohibition today, and if you were to pick a region, most people would think the South. Yeah. Because that's where local option, that is county and city level prohibition, still persists in many states. Uh, and in some cases in Oklahoma, there's actually more dry counties now than there were like, you know, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is like pretty wild. But it's because there's this integration of prohibition into the sort of the bones of Southern Baptists and other sorts of uh, Christian Southerners that alcohol prohibition has become, I would argue, a new sort of tradition that's defined them. Kind of like inerrancy has become like this tradition for a lot of um, fundamentalists and evangelicals in the U.S. In a similar sort of way, I think alcohol prohibition, especially in the South, has become like this marker of Southern Baptist identity for folks because Southern Baptists you know, as a denomination, it's not that old. And obviously slavery, woof, that was like the defining trait of Southern Baptists in 1845 when that was formed. And so, well, we can't talk about slavery. And states' rights, like, well, Southern Baptists are now in all 50 states, including Hawaii and Alaska. So they're not very Southern anymore in terms of like where where their reach is. Now it's national, it's more national than it is Southern. But the sort of distinctive about Southern Baptist identity, you have to have markers besides just like baptism. And so one of these markers has become unofficially prohibition. And I think it's, it's really helpful because a lot of organizations, especially churches, are, they have to define like who's in and who's out. Sure. And having a sort of shorthand issue for determining who's in and out is really just handy um, and, and makes for a lot more kind of cultural unity. And so I think that's why people perceive prohibition as being like the Southern thing, because the South held on longer than anybody else. And particularly Southern Baptists are still holding on to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't have a, I really don't, I mean, I am pro-alcohol myself, mm-hmm. uh, um, but I don't have a problem with, you know, towns or counties or whatever, like if, if the citizens want, <laughs> want sure. those to be, you know, dry counties, you yeah. know, to have blue, like, that's fine, like, I, you know, right. I, you know, I'm glad we have a New Orleans, you know, I'm glad we have a San Francisco, <laughs> I'm glad we have uh you know a muskogee oklahoma i'm glad we have all these different places where people can uh just sort of like hey we want to do it this way here 
Sure. And over here, maybe we don't want to do it this way. We want to do it this way here. And, yeah. you know, like, I'm, yeah. I'm all for people, um, you know, just uh, wanting their community to, uh, you know, represent their values in sure. a way. And, uh, yeah. like I said, so we have a patchwork of, you know, people believe different things and want different things. And so, like I said, so I'm fine with, you know, yeah. I'm fine with letting Texas be Texas and I'm fine with letting California be California. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, that, sort of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's a bummer when I accidentally, like, drive into, um, you know, a dry county or something like that. <laughs> I like, right. go to a restaurant and I'm like, you know, can I get a glass oh, of beer? No. Right. And it's like, oh, rats. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, but, yeah, but, I, uh, I, I agree. I'm a yeah. big fan of federalism. I think it's a great system. Yeah, I think it's the only way when you have a when you have a country as divided on mm. things on so many different things as yeah. we are now. I think like federalism just sort of lets the take the help to keep take the pressure down. Sure. You know, like like I said, yeah. I'm fine where, you know, I don't want Texas to try to make California be more like Texas and I don't want California to try to make Texas more like California. Mm. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, to each their own and, um, you know, it's a big country and, mm. uh, we have all the space we need to let people sort of, uh, um, you know, figure it out on their own and do mm. things on their own and, um, you know, and set up municipalities, like I said, that re- uh, reflect their specific cultural values and moral values and mm. and whatnot. So. Yeah, and that's that's a, a perennial thing, right? Because even the founders were talking about, you know, they they didn't know all the issues we were going to face today. Sure. Obviously, but they did know how people are, and they were trying to set up a system where we can try to balance um, people off of people and let you know local areas be different from each other. Um, and of course, they were worried about, you know, whether it was the British Parliament or the king, they were worried about like an, an overly powerful central authority. They wanted to give people that flexibility. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot about Jeffersonian democracy and sort of more of a communitarian focus, like Catholic social teaching talks more about like a kind of community focus on the mm-hmm. local, yep. you know, act locally sort of a thing. And I think that that resonates a lot. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, and I think it's, and it gets, it gets tricky when there are issues, like, I mean, nowadays, oh my goodness, I mean, talks about um, issues of sexuality and mm-hmm. abortion, those are just really hot on issues. And I, and I, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to interject my own political opinion here. No, go for it. The book, right? No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but my, my whole thing is, it's we got to find out a way to live together. Sure. Right. And when it comes to issues that raise the temperature, these culture war issues, which we're always going to have them, even if we all figure out that we have some way that we agree on. And it's hard to imagine, but like, I mean, slavery was resolved. It was, it cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives, but it was resolved. Um, and then civil rights, thankfully, that that was a much, um, I mean, people still died in that process, but it was much less bloody than the Civil War sure. in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, thank God, honestly, it's miraculous that not more people didn't die in that process. So we're all very thankful for that. And yeah, there's still big problems of inequality in this country, and there's still big issues. But in the midst of it, I think it's important to understand that, you know, quote unquote, good Christian folks could and did have pretty different approaches to issues. And even if they believe the same thing. So it's one thing to say, like, I don't think I should drink alcohol. It's another thing to say, like, nobody should drink alcohol. Right. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And so, I mean, I work at a Southern Baptist institution, right? I'm Anglican. um, So I'm a big fan of tradition. But at the same time, you know, one of the laws is if I work here, you can't drink alcohol, which I I think is a rule that I wouldn't obviously impose. (laughs) But I'm like, while I'm here, 
I'm going to follow that rule, you know, because this is my community. So, like, right? not even in your house and, like, the comfort of your own? Yeah, no. Yeah, they're like, no, no, no. They don't. No. Nope. Uh-huh. Nobody, nope. And that's the whole thing. And I'm kind of like, well, number one, it saves money. Um, <laughs> you know, and number two is, like, it's really, like, what sacrifices are we willing to make within our communities? Um, and I think if that's if that's the goal, is really, like, seeking the good of the community and the good of one another. I think that helps us at least begin to have these discussions. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I don't know if I could do total i've said like you can't drink well, you don't like, have to work here yeah i know i know i know that i know but so like even if you're like <laughs> so like see like even you're on vacation in hawaii or something you can't yep. just like throw back a mai tai or, no, that, or that, that's a no-no oh yeah. man i know it's yeah but it's a sacrifice i'm willing to make yeah, yeah right <laughs> and it's funny because like principally like so when i wrote my dissertation you know i wrote this thing about you know how i was a moderate drinker hmm. you know and and now in the book i'm like well now i'm an institution where that's not that's not that's not in line with the institution's values. So um, I guess that's the way a community is. You know, communities will always call us to do things that, whether or not we 100% agree with everything in the community, um, there's going to be sacrifices as part of there. But again, not not every American has to. You know, yeah, work, yeah, yeah. I'm working. You know what I'm saying? And that's and I, so I, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing if people you know are going to be um, moderately drinking. You know, that's I'll leave that up to them and God. Temperance, temperance, myself, temperance. In this community, you know, that's that's the choice I've made. Yeah, yeah, no, I um the the thing that always annoyed me about um not, I mean it's just that when people take jobs at certain institutions where they yes. have yes. Uh, specific rules, mm-hmm. and then they break the rule. And yeah. then, like, they get disciplined or fired, and then, like, it becomes, like, this cause celeb where, like, oh, can you uh-huh. look what happened at, like, this Baptist school or this Catholic, uh, uh-huh. or the, this Catholic diocese fired so-and-so for it. And it's like, well, you knew the rule, and yeah. um, you knew it going in, and yeah. so it's not, like... I, I hear you, and that's that's the localism, right? Yeah, yeah. This local institution gets to make its own rules, and yeah. if we're going to be part of that institution, like, nobody's forcing us necessarily to be part of Or, like, of even... Even, like, public schools that have, like, dress codes and then, like, yeah. uh, you know, the kid will it'll yeah. be, like, this story, like, where the yeah. kid gets sent home for something for the dress code and, like, the parents are like, yeah. I don't understand why this is blah, blah, blah. So, but, you know, I mean, like, it's it's yeah. it's in the rules. It's right there, like, going in, like, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't want that, then mm-hmm. take your kid, put your kid somewhere else. I don't know. I just, yeah, I know it's, that it's always annoys with public schools because they're more accountable to, like, the yeah. taxpayers and everything versus, like, private schools. I mean, private schools can do, like, whatever they want, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being part of a private school, like, I'm like, yeah, I mean, they, they can kind of do whatever they want, sure. uh, you know, within some limits. But um, that that's we, – we all, we're all part of this world, right? And mm-hmm. we're all part of the, you know, these communities that we have. And, you know, th- there it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway, all right. <laughs> I know uh, this is, we're having a lot of fun here. I, I, yeah. Mindful of time is already 2.07 uh, Eastern time, so yeah, like I don't so know what time we have here. We've already gone over an hour. Um, okay. So <laughs> – I don't you know. Let me let no. There was a uh, we kind of talked about this, but let me just a couple more yeah. questions and then we'll yeah, sure. we'll wrap it up. Sure. Uh, or maybe just one more specific question about the book. So uh, how did uh, so basically we talked about 1928 and uh, Al Smith and Herbert Hoover. Yeah. And then uh, basically after that election, um, uh, preachers and. Uh, <laughs> religious leaders they pretty much figured all right well this goes to show that prohibition mm-hmm. sort of a settled question once and for all right, right. <laughs> and uh and then we're like well so now we really don't we can get back to 
we don't have to do political advocacy anymore mm. and we can go back to you know saving souls and, and sure. uh, all that sort of stuff yeah um so that was so that 1928 1929 is really like the that sort of high water mark there oh yeah um so they withdraw afterwards but the but how did the uh the prohibitionists how did uh how did the dries how did they evolve um after the end of prohibition that's a great question. So the epilogue deals with this a little bit, and it depends. So um, one of my favorite prohibitionists, Ernest, Ernest Sherrington, he was the data guy, and I love that somebody tallied up the numbers. He was always more of a believer in education than political advocacy. So basically, when the ASL kind of fell apart after national prohibition repeal, and then state after state in 1933 and 34 and 35, the writing was on the wall. Prohibition is, is going away, even at the statewide level for most states. Mm-hmm with a handful of exceptions, mostly in the South and Oklahoma. Uh, the only state in the Union to always be dry from its inception until it repealed Prohibition in the 30s. Um, uh, so, yeah, there is this um, this shift. Um, sorry, I, I, I just blanked. I was just thinking too much about Oklahoma there. No, that's okay. Yeah, rephrase the question again. Yeah, so uh, how did the uh, how did they evolve? Yes, how, how did the drives evolve after right. prohibition? Yeah, yeah. So so basically they're focusing more on education. So yeah. one organization is like the United Texas Drives, which is one of the bigger organizations, and they evolve into so first we're going to talk about education, and they said once everyone's educated about alcohol and they really know the facts, they're all going to be prohibitionist, which obviously doesn't happen. Um, some of them fight sort of a rearguard vanguard uh, action against as they're retreating to keep some local uh, options alive. Of course, blue laws are an example of their success. Um, and then they more or less shift more into kind of alcohol is bad, drugs are bad. And I think a lot of the anti-drug organizations that crop up in the 70s and 80s are kind of descendants of these groups. Uh, in fact, like the United Texas Drives morphs into this organization about drug advocacy in the 70s. So that's like a direct connection between the Just Say, like the Just Say No to Drugs, those kind of groups. Some of them actually emerge from anti-prohibition movements. Um, but also you have the neo-prohibition movement in the 1980s. Um, so the, the drinking age was raised across the country to 21 because they, the federal government, the Congress tied highway funding to raising the minimum alcohol age, 21. So basically they kind of put a, they railroaded people, so to speak, or in this case, high, highwayed people mm-hmm. of the different states into raising their, their, their age. So even though drinking still occurs with people below 21 uh, illicitly, that that legal age was kind of raised. So even though prohibition isn't gone, there's still the war on drugs. So we still have government intervention into drug consumption. It's just not alcohol anymore as much. Um, and you still do have limitations on when, where, um, how people can drink alcohol in different states, right? In some states, you have to get your liquor from like a liquor state dispensary, which is an old concept going back to the like yeah. late 1800s in some states. So, I mean, it depends. Or like in Texas, you can't buy alcohol before noon on a Sunday, because I guess they want you to go to church and then go on a binge, right? Um, so so there, there are these kind of interesting laws that are still out there. But yeah, I would argue that it never, it didn't really die, it just kind of evolved and changed. And again, like you said about like 1928, and then boom, four years later, FDR sweeps into power on this we want beer platform, right? So the moral of the story is overreach leads to reaction. And you never really know where the culture wars are gonna go. And some people talk about like, this inevitable, like, unidirectional 
whether it's progress or kind of like this is the way culture is going to be. And we just don't know. Right. That's one of the things about history. Like it's contingency. Like we don't know what's going to happen. Things can change and things can change really fast, too. Right. Nothing's inevitable. And again, if you told people 10 years ago that the Supreme Court is maybe going to overturn Roe, people like laugh in your face. Right. And now it's like it's like probably going to happen. That's like a big deal. But it's also something that even though people have been talking about this as a possibility for decades, like I I don't think a lot of people really believed it was ever going to happen, you know. And so things can change real fast and movements can morph. And even if prohibition isn't still the law of the land, there can be more limitations on alcohol than before. And when it comes to drug legalization, maybe the, the federal government will legalize marijuana in the next 10 years. Maybe it won't. We don't know. Right. A lot of things are up for grabs. Um, and so I, I always say, like, you know, like demographics isn't destiny. Even when things seem to be going one direction, they could change. So that's kind of one of the things I want to want to stress in the book is we don't know what's going to happen. But I think it's very important as we're asking these questions to listen to voices that aren't always heated, especially like racial minorities, but also religious minorities. Right. Just because people aren't talking about issues in a very bombastic way doesn't mean they don't matter. Sure. Just because not every Christian is as loud as like Billy Sunday um, <laughs> or televangelists doesn't mean they don't have a following and doesn't mean their votes don't matter. It doesn't mean they don't even swing elections. Yeah. And we've got to listen to everybody, you know, um, and all these voices, because if we're not listening to all the voices, then we we're giving a partial picture. And that's kind of like, you know, it, when you slant the truth enough, it's not the truth anymore. So my whole thing is like, it's not about like, let's listen to the voices because I'm trying to meet some sort of, like threshold of like we need to listen to all these new interesting Quota voices or something yeah yeah I'm just saying it's not accurate right. unless we listen to all the voices and then we're getting the total picture right. and I think it's so much more interesting when we do that also um, but yeah just because Roman Catholics didn't weren't bombastic about prohibition didn't mean they didn't have thoughtful and meaningful things to say and interesting things to say um, Lutherans are notoriously quietistic like they they don't speak up a lot you know in American religious history. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I really desperately tried to throw in some Lutherans in there, you know, especially for my friend at Baylor, Tim Grinmeyer. He's like, where are the Lutherans? You know, that's always his question. <laughs> and we got to listen for the, the the voices that maybe haven't gotten enough attention. But when we listen to the full symphony of voices, I think we're going to get a much more complete picture and it's going to be a more beautiful one, too. All right. Great. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you might have just answered my last question with sure. that answer, but I'll uh, yeah. go ahead and ask it anyway, because it's just sure. a question I ask sure. everybody that comes on. Yeah. Sure. And that is, uh, what what would you like the audience to get out of this book? You know, like, what's, what's the one thing you'd sure. want them to take away from reading it? Yeah. Um, again, pay attention to voices that you may or may not have heard of. Um, I would say also ask interesting questions. The reason this book came about and my dissertation, too, is because I was asking questions other people just weren't asking. I did not come up with hardly any sources that other people haven't talked about before. There are there are a few exceptions to that, mostly relating to John Rayner. But by and large, everything that I wrote about is available and a lot of it's available online. Right. You can like Google it. You can just find it through these free um, these great repositories of sources like archive.org, Hath I Trust, uh, like newspapers online. Um, Library of Congress, but I was asking questions people weren't asking. I was asking, what does prohibition say about religion and culture wars generally? 
I was asking, what does prohibition have to do with Jim Crow and race? And now some people have asked those questions, but um, kind of more generally, like across the South, like how did what, what is the impact of you know prohibition on Jim Crow and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? Like nobody, as far as I can tell, was asking that question specifically. Um, and so when you ask new questions, this is what I love about history, right? It's not as though you have to find like all these new sources, but if you ask a different question, you connect dots in a different way. It doesn't mean that everybody went before you is wrong. It just means they were asking different questions and got different answers. So I encourage people to ask questions that are connecting things that people may not think have a connection. And you might find out something really surprising that kind of is, can be almost a paradigm shift. It changes the way we look at the whole thing, Mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes we think about prohibition as all it's about is like people want to drink and people want to stop people from having fun. And like, okay, maybe that's part of the story, but there's a whole lot more going on about the nature of religion and politics, how we think about tradition and common sense and how we think about uh, racial control and these reforms. And I think it, it, it flips a lot of ideas that people have like, Prohibition was actually progressive. Whoa, you know, a lot of people have already said that already among academics, but kind of a different way that that's true. You know, religiously, it was progressive, I would argue. Um, and I think, when, again, when we ask new questions, hopefully we'll get refreshing answers that help us see everything in a new light. All right. Very good. Um, well, before we go, is there anything else uh, you want to plug? Uh, any appearances or... Um... Well, social media or anything like that yeah go to my website um let's see uh let me check if 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 it is decent now um (laughs) yeah uh yeah it's on it's my twitter handle is bjj payne p-a-y-n-e um and let's see oh yeah it's brendan my my website is brendan b-r-e-n-d-a-n j payne p-a-y-n-e dot wordpress.com so it's not a fancy website <laughs> but it is a website um it's a functional it website it's a functional website yeah. exactly so again twitter handle <laughs> at bjj Payne, and that has a link also to my um my website as well so again please buy the book you're gonna love it uh it's a great uh, birthday present fourth of july present christmas present uh <laughs> for everyone um but yeah, just but but do read books about this topic because um, I think it helps us see the world afresh. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, couldn't agree more. Actually, it's uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, very Thank very you. interesting. I'm uh, as a sort of quasi southerner at this point. I've been down. In <laughs> I've been down in Florida now for 20 years. I guess that's, oh, yeah. that pretty much makes me you know somewhat a southerner. Um, sure, and sure. I'm interested in. Uh, southern stories and uh, the south is just sort of uh, there's something just much more fascinating about the south than than every other portion of the country yeah Uh, i don't know what it is but it's just uh it's just a really weird fun interesting place Uh, yeah it is uh, yeah and so um so yeah so i had a great time reading about learning all this stuff i didn't know about uh jim crow and Mm -hmm. prohibition and the and uh, how the two tie together and yeah. and all the fun anti-catholic stuff in there it's always fun <laughs> it's always fun for me to read the uh, the virulent uh, virulent virulent anti-papist uh, mm. uh, stuff from you know the late 19th century and the early 20th century I always, it I, is I always get a kick out of it uh, what was what was the one the one guy said something um, 
imps, whiskey-soaked imps of hell or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Cassidy Johnson cap. <laughs> he just, he had a way with words, you know. <laughs> he, he did have a way with words. Very yeah. interesting. I was thinking, like, if I had, like, my own Twitter page, like, or Twitter handle, I would, like, might make <laughs> it, like, whiskey-soaked imp or something like that. Or, uh... Oh, yeah, oh, that's a line from uh, J. Frank Norris, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From Texas. Yeah. But, yeah, very similar language to Sidney Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's quite a line. Yeah. So, so yeah, I uh, highly recommend everybody go out and get it. It's also a very snazzy-looking book, too. It's a, a very good uh, color scheme and uh, mm-hmm. uh, nice. Uh, I'm a big fan of whoever put together the uh, Yeah, me too. I just want to give big thanks out to my LSU Press folks. And what a beautiful cover. Um, yeah. The, the editors and the feedback I got from readers was just really made the book so much better. Um, I'm glad that you're looking at it after all the edits that I got um, and all the feedback that I got because I think they, they just helped really strengthen the book and make it um, all that it could be. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So the book, again, is Jin, Jesus, and Jim Crow, Prohibition and the Transformation of Racial and Religious Politics in the South. The author is Dr. Brendan J.J. Payne. So, Dr. Payne, again, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the podcast and having a discussion with me about the book. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. All right, thanks. And again, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can uh, reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. Uh, that's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our Twitter uh Twitter uh, page for the uh, for the podcast. You can reach us out out to us there too. You know, give us a follow, send us a DM, something like that. Uh, I might change the uh, the name of it now to uh, at uh, whiskey soaked imp. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, no, but the, uh, the the Twitter handle for the for the podcast is just at illbooks at i l l books. So uh, make sure you follow us there too. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Hi, Mom. Hi, Robbie. Love you both. Bye-bye.